right? The greatest man to ever live. Um, let's start out by reading not in Matthew chapter 3, but in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Beginning in verse 7. So Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are kings are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen No one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. If I were to ask you, who you think is the greatest man who ever lived? I know if I were to ask, uh, perhaps in a class uh, at school, I would get names like Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein, Benjamin Franklin... And maybe even Ronald Reagan. How many of you think that Ronald Reagan was great? I do. How many of you? No, I'm just... (laughs) Uh, But there would be all kinds of different names that that would be thrown out, right? In today's world, John the Baptist would not be on the top 10 list, or maybe not even in the top 50, not even in the top 100. In fact, in the world's eyes, he wouldn't even make a list. He would have been considered to be fanatical and crazy and maybe even evaluated for a mental institution, especially if someone like Bernie Sanders was evaluating him. I'm not interested in what the world would consider John the Baptist to be or not to be. I really am not. I'm interested in what God has to say about John the Baptist and how God saw him. I think that's the very thing that we ought to be really primarily interested in. Not what the world has to say even about us. But what does God say about us? How does he see see us? I believe one of the greatest tragedies of man is to consider what everyone else thinks when evaluating self but God. We put him kind of like off to the side. We only run to him when we have problems, when things aren't going right. But never consider him when we're personally evaluating ourselves. We go to a psychiatrist or someone who can tell us, you know, where we're at. But yet we rarely run to the one who has the answers to everything that pertains to life and godliness. We don't run to him. There is nothing more important in this life than being right before God. And for that, you need Jesus. And that is what John the Baptist was doing. He was preparing the way for Jesus. This was something that he existed to do. This was his purpose in life. 
even before he was born. In fact, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. I want you to get to know who it is that we have before us. In Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 8. says, Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, this is Zechariah, his father, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is before he was even in the womb. John's life was a simple one that was focused on preparing the people, as we see here, to receive the Son of God. That was his whole life's purpose. That was it. He was simply an arrow, you could say, that was pointing to Jesus Christ himself. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was what he lived his whole life to do, to say those very words. And if that is what made him great in the sight of God, then I'd like to know more about this man. As I think about it, the Apostle Paul was such a man, and so were the other apostles. You see John, you see Peter, and all of the others. That's what their lives were all about. As soon as Jesus called them to be his disciples and follow him, he was teaching them to do the very thing that John the Baptist was doing here. To make disciples of all nations. To point people to the Savior of the world. There are in our text this morning three areas of John's life that we will learn about. And we can use to reflect on and ask the Lord to reveal what our lives consist of and what kind of impact we are making. We'll see his message his life, and his impact. Truly eternal. In fact, the historians of Jesus' time and beyond spoke more and wrote more about John the Baptist, like people like Josephus, than they did about Jesus. So John the Baptist pointed it to, to Jesus, and he was great in the sight of God. But also in the eyes of the historians at the time, he was, he was an amazing object of study. He was the one that they looked to, and it's like, wow, this man was truly great. Well, let's learn about him. First of all, his message. Turning back to Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. 
In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His message, that that was his message. Again, as we read in Luke chapter 1, he was born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Luke chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, just previous to the verses that we read, says this, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. This child, John, was born to a really old couple. She was considered to be barren. That means she couldn't have any babies. They hadn't had any babies up to that point. But God was waiting. She was going to have one child. Keep in mind, these two were considered righteous before God. They stayed faithful even when they were enduring this, these long years of being barren, which in that time was uh, uh, shameful. People looked to a woman who was barren and, and thought, yeah, she was of little value. Wasn't looked to, looked up to at all. And yet God was saving her for this one child to be the forerunner of the Messiah. There's a lot of lessons that can be learned here, just with those two, just with that couple. Sometimes we're waiting to be used in such a mighty way by the Lord. And yet he says, you know what, just be faithful to me. That faithfulness, just as it was counted righteousness with Abraham, is counted righteousness with you. Why? Because you have faith in me. You trust in me. You believe in me. Just stay faithful. You never know what you're doing and the impact that you're having on just one child. Or maybe it's not your child. Maybe it's someone across the aisle in how you're impacting them by your faithfulness. John's message was simple. And it could be summed up with one word. You know what that word is? Repent. Repent. Let me ask you this. How does it feel when someone tells you to repent? What kind of feelings are drummed up within you when you hear something like that? You guys like to hear that? Anyone? No? You don't like to hear that, huh? It's like John the Baptist came on the scene and and that that was his message. Repent. Repent. (laughs) You're like, ugh, this guy gets under my skin, right? Because if we repent, that means we have something to repent of, right? It's like, I don't really want to admit anything. That was his message. That was it. His whole ministry is summed up in one word, repent. Much of the time, I believe that word receives the same response today as it did with those who were self-righteous and full of pride then. Like, ah, okay, so, wait a minute. Are you implying that, yeah, explicitly, that we are full of pride and we are self-centered and and we don't want to respond to a word such as that, like repent. That's hard-hitting. That's like, 
very definitive. That is something that we must respond to one way or the other. Either reject or receive, right? I believe that the world's brainwashing of society with pride, self-centered, and self-righteous thinking has been the decaying factor that makes it difficult for many people to express true humility and true consideration of who Jesus is and genuinely come to repentance. Why? Because we've been fed all our lives. I know I have. That it's all about you when it was all about him. Now, he desires to do things through us, but it's about his greatness, not our greatness. We can become great in the eyes of the Lord when we have faith in him with true and genuine humility before him. Not pounding on our chest, but pointing to him that he would draw more into his bosom and really know the intimacy of God the Father through God the Son. What is repentance? Is repentance a feeling of sorrow? Many people think that it is mostly about feeling sorry about sin. But we we have many people that feel sorry about something and even say they are sorry without ever really reaching repentance. You see, the point that we need to reach is not a feeling of sorrow, but actual repentance. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's like godly sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance. If God wishes that all should reach repentance and none perish, then I believe it is critical to know exactly what repentance is. Is it necessary, the, a, an important question to ask is, is it necessary to repent before we can come to know God? Salvation. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So again, I ask you the question, is it necessary to repent before we can come to God? Well, it's kind of a trick question. Because repentance is not necessarily something that we must do before we come to God, but rather something that happens when we genuinely come to God. Through Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith. It happens simultaneously. It's not apart from each other. It's all together. The the moment you believe in Jesus, the Son of God, you understand that you're coming to Him by grace through faith in Him, that through Him you receive forgiveness of sins. Well, there must be repentance in order for you to receive forgiveness of sins. Why? Because you're confessing your sins to the Lord. Right? So it all happens together simultaneously. As you're coming to faith, as you're coming to that place to where you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're repenting, believing, and it's all working together. And it's amazing because that burden of sin is lifted off of you 
And you will know it if you've experienced that. You all know, all of you who are saved, you know, you know that happened the moment you genuinely surrendered your life to the Lord. It's like you could take this deep breath. You, could, you didn't have to look anymore. That was it. To come to God is to leave sin. And that can only be done through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's John 14, 6. Now, it is physically impossible to get to the refuge without leaving your home. Right? Oh, you may be sorrowful. You may have all of these feelings, but until you act upon that and leave your home and come, it is physically impossible to get to the refuge, no? Repentance, likewise, is not just a feeling of sorrow. But repentance is something that is acted upon. It requires the exercise of the will. And in Christ, it is a response to the love that was demonstrated through his sacrifice on the cross as our substitutionary atonement for our sin. He died in our place. So, yes, the Lord provides that way of salvation. Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you receive him? And if the answer is yes... By the way, that's an exercise of free will. <laughs> we are responding to that offer of salvation. And we are turning from our sin and turning to Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Let's talk about repentance here. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the first time Jesus preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, Mark chapter 6, verse 12. When Jesus was instructing his disciples on how to preach, this is what he taught them to do. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47. And said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Speaking to his disciples. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, as Peter preached his first sermon and explained the gospel, who Jesus is, he came to the end and he responded to everyone asking, what shall we do? He said, repent and be baptized. John's message was simple, and that was what he was known for. The message of repentance, not social justice, not for his amazing care of the earth, not for his amazing success in paving roads or even building a big old business empire, but for his message of repentance that he proclaimed preparing the way for Christ in the hearts of all who would care to listen. Now, let, let me clarify something for you. I am not saying that all of these other endeavors, all of these other things, are not things that are important. God can use you in whatever area you work in, live in, 
family that you're in, all of that. But what I do want to point out is the most important thing in life. And that is what John the Baptist was doing. See, you're given a platform. You're given an opportunity to do the work of an evangelist. Well, I'm not an evangelist. Well, that's fine. Maybe you you don't have the gift, the spiritual gift of, of being an evangelist. But the Bible does clearly command us to do the work of an evangelist. In other words, to open up our mouths and to lead people to Christ, to plant seeds and to tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, it's not just by living a righteous life, but it's also bringing that together by telling others why it is that you're living such a life and helping them to come to that place of knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. So what John the Baptist did is he preached, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This meant that to know the kingdom of heaven was not some far-off imaginary land, but it was real and tangible in a true sense, and there was a sense of urgency to the call of repentance, a call to come to Jesus today. Not tomorrow, it's today. Today is the day of salvation, is, is what the Bible tells us. Not tomorrow, for tomorrow is promised to no one. We don't know what tomorrow holds. So, number one, his message. Number two, his life. Verse three. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. You guys ready? We have some locusts and wild honey right back here. Uh, yeah, that'll be the last snack we have here, right? Now, the book was, uh, uh, of Isaiah was written uh, about 700 years before Christ. Here we are 700 years later, and this prophecy was being fulfilled about John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. John's life's purpose was to prepare the hearts of the people for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And it was marked by a call to being aware of sin. Be aware of sin. This is what he was proclaiming throughout all Judea. And they were coming to him in droves. They were coming to him for them to know and to respond to that awareness. And how it was that that was the very thing that would separate him from a true relationship with the Father. John's life was marked by the building of a road that prepared for the arrival of our majestic king. It gives us this this beautiful picture in our minds of what he was doing. Think about what a road crew does today on the roads of Southern California. They have a lot of work to do. They make sure that the potholes are filled, stripes are clear, and signs are posted so that you get to your intended destination in a safe manner. Right? Adam Clark said this, quote, The idea is taken from the practice of Eastern monarchs, who, whenever they entered upon an expedition or took a journey through a desert country, set harbingers, 
before them to prepare all things for their passage and pioneers to open the passes to level the ways and to remove all impediments. Close quote. This is what marked the life of John. But John, we know, he wasn't preparing a physical road, but a spiritual one in the hearts of men that needed to be prepared to receive the coming king, the Savior, their Savior. John's interests were nothing more than to do the will of the Father. And he was doing that. There was nothing in John's life that would really draw men to himself. I mean, think about it. The only thing that John had to offer was this message of repentance. And yet all of Judea and the outlying communities were coming to him as he preached repentance. What was it? Was he this charismatic guy? As we were talking earlier, like with the beard, skinny jeans, and drank latte at the local, the local barista, you know? And No, it wasn't, right? He wasn't no, at least from what I read, he wasn't no cool dude. He wasn't appealing to the masses in the way sometimes that we, we tend to want to appeal to the masses. No, today you could say that this preacher was a t-shirt and Levi wearing man who ate simple food. Very simple food, right? If he were to take selfies and post them on social media, it wouldn't really cause many people to double tap. You're like, who's that? <laughs> he dresses weird. And what does he eat? Oh, maybe you, maybe you do double tap. I need to know more about this guy. Locusts and wild honey. Maybe that's a new trend that's going to start. No, there was nothing about John the Baptist that was outwardly appealing. Nothing at all. Zero. C.H. Spurgeon said this, quote, Lord, let not my meat, my drink, or my garments hinder me in thy work. I, I love that. Let nothing hinder my work before the Lord. Nothing. It's this humble life of the greatest man to have been born that causes me to examine my own life and consider what my main message is and what my life consists of. You see, God grabbed a hold of me before he, this morning. I'm studying, I'm looking through these six verses. First of all, I looked through the whole chapter and I thought, well, put it all together, you know, the whole thing. What do you want, Lord? You know? So we have these conversations. You want to just kind of go through this? No. It's like, let's, let's break this down a little bit. Because I also want to point some things out in your life. Uh, well, kind of puts things in perspective. It's humbling. It's humbling when the work of consecration is happening in your own life. And then you begin to realize some things. You begin to see things as God sees them. Even if it's dimly. As for John, his life consisted of preparing the hearts of people for Jesus and living a simple, very simple life. So number one, this is the greatest man. Jesus considered this man to be the greatest man who walked on the face of the earth. So we have his message We know his message. What is it? Repent. Right? His life. Simple. 
How about his impact? Verse 5. Then Jerusalem, in all Judea, in all the region about the Jordan, were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. His impact. John baptized many people. Many, many people. People walked many miles to come to repent. Imagine that. Where are you going? I'm going to go see John the Baptist. Really? Why? What's going on? I'm going to go repent and be baptized. Can you imagine? Where are you going? Oh, I'm going to church. What are you going to church for? Repent and hopefully be baptized in the Spirit and continue to walk with the Lord. Uh, The Word tells us that we are to be filled with the Spirit, that we would not fulfill the lust of the flesh, right? Now, when we come to church and we come to celebrate, we come to worship the Lord, but sometimes we've had some of those weeks to where we need to come corporately and come before the Lord personally and intimately and just be able to repent before Him. You see, the Christian life is just not a one-time repentance, but it's a daily repentance of living humbly before the Lord. Every day, we ought to say, Lord, I know there's something, and please reveal it to me. If there's any wicked way, reveal it to me, show it to me, that I may repent of it. Well, many people were coming to be baptized by John. Walking many miles to come and repent and be baptized by John in the Jordan River. By God's grace and His blessing, His ministry bore great fruit. You see, the Jew didn't ever think that he was a sinner who was shut out from God. For the first time in their history, they were recognizing they were sinners and were making personal proclamations of desperately needing God to forgive them of their sins. It wasn't a corporate Um, repentance. It was something that was individual. John didn't baptize groups of people together. It was one at a time. So these were personal confessions, individual confessions before the Lord of repentance. For the first time in their history, they were recognizing they were sinners and were making those personal proclamations of needing God to forgive them of their sins. You can say that this was a great revival that was taking place in Judea and in Jerusalem and in Israel. John's impact was such that when Jesus did come on the scene, many people's hearts were prepared to receive Jesus Christ, and many did come to the same knowledge of Jesus Christ. I mean, again, you look back at the day of Pentecost when Peter preached, and they said, brothers, what shall we do? Repent. And be baptized. You know, 3,000 people responded to that invitation and were added to the kingdom of heaven that day. John was part of that preparation of the people. He, He prepared the way for the Lord. And there was a great harvest. They recognized their own poverty of spirit. The question is, do we? 
They recognize an awareness of their own personal need of repentance. Do you? And forgiveness, they were aware of that, that by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, they could receive for themselves. That's where we need to come to. It's, it's humility before the Lord. It's a complete surrender. This was a true work of the Holy Spirit, preparing and drawing people unto the Lord. The impact was not in the number of people that were coming to be physically baptized by John the Baptist, but the number of people who were confessing their sins. Confessing your sins is simply this. It's agreeing with God. That's all it is. Agreeing with God that you have missed the mark. That's all it is. You see, this baptism was not a baptism into Christ, into His death and resurrection at that time, but rather a symbolic baptism of confession and repentance, a washing that comes through confessing or admitting that they had fallen short of the glory of God. That's what they were doing. It is at the time of humble repentance that one's burdens of sin begin to crumble and lose their weight on our shoulders. The work of repentance and eternal salvation is fully known. The moment the full weight of our burden of sin is lifted off of us by Jesus Christ, when we cry out to Him for forgiveness of our sins and to be and cry out to Him to be our Lord, our Savior. C.H. Spurgeon said this, quote, the confessing their sins, quote unquote, which went with baptism in the Jordan, gave it its meaning. Apart from the acknowledgement of guilt, it would have been a mere bathing of the person without spiritual significance, close quote. That's all it would have been. The acknowledgement of guilt is that confession that I was telling you about. I'm, I'm admitting, I'm confessing to you, Lord, that yes, I, was fall, I have fallen short of your perfect standard. John's impact was great. But again, it wasn't great because of the number of people that he baptized, that people, the, the people that came to him, but because he was faithful to live a life devoted to bringing glory to God. That's why he was successful. That's why he was great in the sight of God. To be faithful unto him. To live our lives with purpose unto the Lord. His message, his life, and his impact was considered to be great by God. John chapter 3. Let's go to John chapter 3. And then we'll wrap up. In John chapter 3, verse 25. Verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. This was John the Baptist. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, speaking of Jesus, Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him. 
rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John 3.30 is a, a verse that cannot be overstated in our lives. It's a verse that I believe everyone must commit to memory. And we must allow the Lord to remind us of this very truth. He must increase, but I must decrease. In the original language, this is an ongoing process. He must continue to increase as I continue to decrease. It's something that is part of the process of living unto the Lord. As we diminish, He increases. As we continue to grow dim, you could say, in the eyes of others, He is bright. And He lights up the lives of other people. It's not you. That's, that's why as far as like, like having people rely on anything or anyone else, I would say don't rely on anyone else to provide you with anything that the Lord himself should provide you with. As far as counseling is concerned, that's why if you come here to, for counseling, you will always be pointed to the word of God. You'll just be pointed to him. It's, uh, there's this book, it's called God's Promises. And it has all these different topics. And then these verses that you can go to. It's a great resource. For different things that you're going through, and then you flip through, do you feel depressed? Well, it gives you all kinds of verses. Are you feeling alone? It gives you all kinds of verses to go to. It's awesome because we're going always back to the Word of God. Not a person. If someone says, oh, that counselor is great. The counselor is only great. That pastor is only great. That elder is only great. If they're pointing, as John the Baptist did, to Jesus Christ. That's the only reason. If they're great because, oh man, what great counsel they have. It's like, well, if it's other than the word of God, it's fallen short. It's fallen short. That was John the Baptist. He was beheaded for his faith. And yet he fulfilled his life's purpose. He was considered to be great in the eyes of the Lord. If this man was given to proclaim the message of repentance and forgiveness of sin with urgency because the kingdom of heaven was at hand, then how much more should we consider these words and come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and live a life that is marked by preparing people's hearts to receive him today? Even more so, no? Oh, we have the good news. We have the certain hope in Jesus Christ. We ought to be heralds. We ought to be the very ones who are professing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in our lives and telling people about the good news. Oh, come. Come and know eternal life in Jesus Christ. Surrender your hearts to Him. Cast all your burdens upon Him. Know Him as your personal Lord and Savior. Acts chapter 4, 
Verse 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only Jesus Christ. And so as we consider the life of John, I pray that we would reflect on our own lives. That we truly, as we desire to be great in the eyes of the Lord, just skip over being great in the eyes of the world. Just know that that's empty. In fact, Solomon, in all of his glory, at the, at the end, when everything was considered, he said, he said, this is man's all. To fear God and obey his commandments. To follow the Lord. And trust me, you, could, you couldn't do all that Solomon did. You couldn't have all that Solomon did. You think that you can go to a, a dinner that's titled an Epicurean affair and have all the luxuries of the world at your fingertips and think that that's it. Well, Solomon had had that and a thousand times more. He had everything that he could possibly have. And at the end of his life, he said, it's all vanity. It's all vanity. Ecclesiastes, read the first chapter. He starts out that way. It's, it's all vanity. There's nothing new under the sun. The only thing that truly matters is what John the Baptist was doing. Solomon, King David, none of them were considered to be the greatest men who ever walked the face of the earth, but John the Baptist was. And he was a nobody in the eyes of the world. And yet he drew men to the heart of God. He pointed everyone to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I know it's convicting. I know it's something that as we consider our our own lives and reflect on this on these words in John's life, that sometimes it's difficult. But at the same time, it's awesome. Because we, we, we do. We do look at it and we say, well, I want to be great in the eyes of the Lord. Well, this is it right here. At the same time, I want to point you to Jesus this morning. If you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you too can confess this morning at the same time believing that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Savior. And you today could know salvation. Again, tomorrow's not promised to anyone. We don't know. Right now, our hearts are ticking. The next moment, it could be it. This could be the last invitation that you have. This could be it this morning. Do you want to be assured of the fact that you are saved and will one day be in the presence of God? And that you could be certain of that this morning. Why? And how? Well, why? Because I know I don't want you to perish and suffer eternal separation from God. More importantly, God wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's more important that we consider that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The Bible tells us that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. There's no ifs, there's no contending with that. That is the word of God. It's the very breath of God. He is faithful and what he says is true. And you can know that with absolute certainty. 
So I pray this morning as we close our eyes, we consider all of these things. But more importantly, if there is someone here who does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that this morning you simply surrender your life to him humbly and completely and genuinely, asking him for forgiveness and believing that Jesus certainly is the Son of God and he died for you. And today he beckons you, he pleads with you and draws you unto himself and asks that you would simply receive him. It's a free gift by grace through faith in Jesus Christ.